Uh, our teaching text is uh, 1 Peter 3, just two verses, 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Outside the walls of the church uh, today, a beautiful song is being sung. It's being sung on television and on social media. It's being sung in meetings and in movies and at rallies and parades. It's a powerful song, not only a beautiful one, but a powerful song. It's a song about freedom. It's a song about flourishing. It's, it's a song about fairness to people, especially those people who are different and anyone who has been made to feel small. It is a beautiful song and it is a powerful song. And in the song, there is a villain. There is a bad guy. And do you know who it is? Anybody? It's you, and it's me. The world we woke up in today is a world in which the Christians are the immoral ones. The, the world we woke up in today is a world in which we are the bad guy. We are the intolerant ones. We are the hateful ones. We are the ones who have made those who are different to feel small. And I'm just, I just wonder, do you practically, actually feel that tension yourself? As a Christian in New York City, do you at all feel that tension that, oh my, um, not everybody who, not everybody really knows me, so I'm not sure everybody really is going to understand me if and when they find out that I'm a Christian. Does anybody else feel that way? Okay, I see some heads nodding. I feel that way. I feel that way. I feel that tension. I know that I do. And, and you can say to people, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those Christians. Or, uh, yes, I have maybe different convictions about some things than you, but I'm not a bigot. Or, yes, I believe the Bible, but that doesn't mean that I automatically hate other people. We can say things like that, but I don't think it really matters to a society that has already determined who the villain is, to a culture that's already identified Christians as the bad guys. And sorry, in this male chauvinistic world, I'm using the term bad guys. It just bad girls doesn't have the same kind of ring to it, does it? But if you want to be included, bad girls and guys. Okay, so we're the bad guy and the bad girl. Uh, and this has a shook, or like my eighth grader likes to say, triggered. 
we're triggered. That's a new thing for all of you old people out there. It's just come up. Uh, it's being used at lunchtime. The question is then for us, how do we bear good news about Jesus when people see us as bad news in the world? Is that even possible? How do we bear the witness to the good news about Jesus in a world where the world has already determined that, that we are ourselves bad, bad news? And then I, I think you're probably thinking, well, that's not really my first question. Probably not. Probably your first question is something like, how can I even think about bearing witness to the good news about Jesus when I'm working so hard all the time, constantly, in every conversation, just trying not to say the wrong thing? Or trying not to say the wrong thing or the right thing in the wrong way? Or trying not to say a little thing, because if I have to say a little thing, then I'm going to have to say everything. And, I, and no one has time to say everything. So rather than be misunderstood, I have to say very little or nothing at all. We're working so hard to avoid the consequences of our, of our beliefs or, 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 or words or, or actions, consequences at work, consequences with our neighbors, consequences with our own family. The holidays are coming up. I'm sure many of you are excited about that and others of you dreading the conversations you may have around the table, but, um, but that's the problem we face. Because here we are in a world where we're, we're, we're tempted to take a step back, to shrink back in the shadows, but then we, the Bible doesn't change, and we come across verses like this where the Apostle Timothy is writing to his, I'm sorry, Paul is writing to his disciple Timothy. And in the second letter, in 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul says to his disciple, preach the word, preach this good news. He says, be ready in season and out. There's never a time where you shouldn't be preaching the good news about God. And as you preach, he says, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul's giving this charge to Timothy. And if you're like, well, I'm not a Paul follower, I'm a Jesus follower. Well, there's a problem there, but I understand maybe a little bit. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the good news, the gospel to all creation. So here we are trying to figure out how not to say the wrong thing, and we're being implored by the totality of the scriptures, Jesus, the one we follow himself, to go out all of the time and talk about the good news without ceasing to everyone everywhere. How do we do that? So where do we go from here? How do we, as people who are seen as bad news, effectively bear witness to the good news of Jesus and his kingdom? I hope as I speak, it creates a lot of questions about what I'm saying, for you. Um, I'm leaving a lot out this morning, and uh, I want to encourage us as a community to learn to have these conversations together. How did we get to where we are? Who's complicit in this? What forces are at work, both within the church and outside of the church? How did we get to where we are? I hope this stirs up some of that conversation over the next few weeks, but how do we effectively bear witness to the good news of Jesus and his kingdom today? And this is the question I want to begin working out together uh, over the, the next few weeks. This is what we'll be sort of rooted in. And so this morning, I just want to simply offer a way to begin moving forward. How, how do we sort of take a step out of the shadows that we're tempted to sort of slink back into? How do we effectively take a step out of the shadows and, and forward to be faithful to the mandate that God has given us to continue this ministry of reconciliation that began in Jesus, 
to continue to preach the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, and it's coming. And when the kingdom come, every, uh, comes, everything changes. How do, we, how do we take a step forward so we can re-engage with the mission that God has called each of us? Not just the church as sort of an organization or a community, and not just professionals who work in the church, and not just missionaries overseas, but how do we as normal, everyday followers of Jesus, just daughters and sons of God, disciples of Jesus, how do we, on our campuses and in the lab and, um, and in the office and on the street, how do we, uh, and on the block, how do we uh, begin or, or pick up again this thing that God has given to us, which is, which is the mission, his mission, to renew and restore all things. So some of you will remember the story of Odysseus. Uh, our oldest daughter is a, a junior uh, in college, and right now they're actually sort of working through uh, the Odyssey, and uh, Odysseus is the legendary Greek king and the hero of, of, of the Odyssey, Homer's, Homer's ep epic uh, poem. And uh, I want to read, no, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to read the Odyssey this morning. But I do want to show the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, Actually, I don't, but it is based on the Odyssey, and it is one of my favorite movies. So, Odysseus is this uh, character, in this particular part of his journey, he's been warned about the deadly sirens, the, the mermaids that, uh, whose voices are even more beautiful than their faces. He's been warned that when sailors pass by, the sirens sing their irresistible songs, luring the sailors to the island where they are shipwrecked on the rocks. And the island itself is just littered with the bones of sailors who have, who have come before them, but the sailors only ever see or ever hear the beauty of the sirens as they sing their song. And Odysseus is warned about the sirens, and, and as his ship approaches the island, he puts wax in the sailors' ears, and he instructs them to bind him to the mast of the ship and to ignore any commands to get him down once the sirens start singing. And so they put the wax, he puts wax in their ears, they bind him to the mast, and, and they, uh, they continue to sail. And as they get closer and closer, the sirens begin to sing their song, and immediately Odysseus falls prey. But he's tied to the mast, and he can't go anywhere. So he begins motioning and, and, and mumbling and, and, and pointing and trying to gesture to the sailors to, to untie him, to let him down so that they can go, or at least he can go, over to the siren's song. But because they cannot hear the song themselves, the sailors just paddle on, and they're saved. Oh, there's another story about the sirens, also involving a Greek figure, this one named Orpheus. Anybody know Orpheus? He's a legendary musician and poet and prophet in, in Greek mythology. And uh, you find him throughout Greek writings, but in the epic poem, the Argonautica, Orpheus sails past the same sirens that Odysseus sails past in the Odyssey. And when Orpheus hears the voices, though, rather than bind himself to the mast or plug the sailor's ears with wax, he draws out his own instrument as the sirens begin to sing. And he plays louder than the sirens. And he plays a song more beautiful than the siren song. And the siren songs are drowned out and the sailors are saved. So where do we go from here? I think we have 
two choices today as Christians. I think we can either brace ourselves and hope for the best, or we can sing a better song. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark argues that Christianity didn't flourish around the, begin to flourish around the 300s because of uh, Constantine's conversion, the emperor of Rome, but, but in fact, he argues for the other way around. He argues that Constantine converted, maybe not necessarily because he was convinced, but because of the overwhelming uh, sort of popularity, the wave of Christianity sweeping through Rome. And in a sense, Constantine tries to get ahead of the wave and, and, and himself convert um, in, in, in Rome. And uh, the question then is, well, why at this time in history was Christianity moving so rapidly through, uh, through the Roman province? We know that Rome was a pagan society. It had thousands upon thousands of, of pagan gods that were um, imported into Rome. Um, and uh, the, 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 option of, uh, the options for, for worship were, were um, sort of never-ending. So how did Christianity take root in a in a culture like that, a pluralistic pagan culture like Rome at the time? Well, the answer is simple and not simple, but I think ultimately the answer is the Christians sang a better song. When you look back through the history pages, we find Christianity emerging out of this sort of ragtag group of people following this sort of radical rabbi named Jesus who was crucified and dead and, and buried, and everyone saw him be, be buried. But then his followers, his adherents, started claiming that they'd seen him after his death, that he had risen from the dead. And even, even as persecution broke out against the church and, and those early Christians began to die for their faith, become martyrs for their faith. They held firm to the belief that the Jesus that they served and that they followed had in fact risen from the dead and that he was the son of God. Well, in that persecution then, everybody spreads across the Roman province. And so how does a movement that began in persecution, fleeing from persecution, how does it become the state religion of the greatest superpower the world had ever known? And how does it still exist 2,000 years later? And why are we still gathered here in this school, worshiping and singing songs about this same Jesus and about him being risen from the dead? The Christians sang a better song. Stark's basic thesis is that Christianity triumphed over paganism because it improved the lives of those who believed. That's his basic premise. Their song was so powerful that everyone who sang it, their lives were changed for the better, and ultimately society itself was changed for the better. I'll just read you a quick uh, excerpt from uh, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark. Christianity did not grow because of miracle working in the marketplaces, although there may have been much of that going on. By the time I think of, at, at the writing that Rodney Stark did not claim to be a Christian. So it didn't grow because of miracle working in the marketplaces, although there may have been much of that going on, or because Constantine said it should, or even because the martyrs gave it such credibility. It grew because Christians constituted an intense community able to generate the invincible obstinacy so that, offense, um, that so offended the younger Pliny but yielded immense religious rewards. And the primary means of its growth, what was that? was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing numbers of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors to do what? Share the good news. Now, I don't, I don't know what you think about New York and how hopeful you are about New York and the kingdom coming in New York as it is in heaven, but I want to say if the kingdom of heaven can come and supplant the Romans, 
then don't you think it can supplant a city? Don't you think that it's possible, it's possible that if a group of Christians holding to the, the resurrection of Jesus, empowered by his spirit and emboldened by the sacrifices that have been made throughout the centuries, don't you think it's possible that maybe, just maybe, if we hold fast and sing a better song that God may sweep again? I sure hope he does. It's possible. I don't know how probable you think it is, but it is possible. But I will say, uh, if we are shrinking back into the shadows, we know it won't happen. We know that for sure. It will happen when we, like these early Christians in Rome, when we invite our friends and our relatives and our neighbors in, and we share the news that is truly good news, the news about Jesus. So if you're a Christian today, And I'm not assuming that everybody here claims to be a Christian. That's great. We're so glad that you're here. But if you're a Christian today and you want to sing a better song, I I want to suggest, again, to begin to move forward, adopting a posture in in the world that is shaped by three words or phrases. In other words, whatever you do tomorrow or the next day or on normal, regular days in your life, that you do so having adopted a particular posture. It may look different than the posture that you have right now. Some of us are cowering in the shadows like we've spoken of. S- some of us are, 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 are ready to sort of like fight and do battle. And, and some of us, we don't, we don't know really what to believe. And so we're a little bit off balance. But if we adopt this posture, I think it will position us to begin to be able to stay, take steps forward as a community, as a church that bears good news about Jesus. And, and does so in a way that is effective. So if you're a Christian, you want to sing a better song, I want to suggest adopting this posture shaped by these three words or phrases. Number one, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Any conversation or answer coming from a Christian today uh, that begins with I'm sorry will radically shape the conversation in a new way. Now, a lot of us have a problem with this because the same, and I'm going to get to this radical individualism thing in a second, but that same individualism that is pervasive in in our culture that's taken root and driven so much of the sort of this divide that we're talking about this morning, so much of that's entered the church as well in our own hearts and lives. And so it's out of this place of radical individualism that we go, what am I apologizing for? I've never done anything against these people. I've been very open and welcoming and honest. And like I said, I don't, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those guys or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's a history throughout the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, of, of Christians, of followers of God, of worshipers of God, taking ownership of the damage that this movement has done. And if we can't recognize that the church has participated and done damage, then we need to look a little bit closer to how we've been complicit. So if our posture, whether you say these words or not, or have the opportunity to say these words or not, I'm not even suggesting that these are the actual words that you say, but if we walk out tomorrow in the rest of this week, if we walk out with a posture of of, uh, of being sorry. Sorry for what? I'm sorry that instead of being loved, you felt hated. I, I'm sorry that instead of being heard, you were shouted down. 
I'm sorry that instead of being welcomed, you were rejected. I'm sorry. Second word or phrase is thank you. Can we, can, we, can we adopt a posture that says humbly, truly, people have been hurt and we're sorry? And then secondly, can we honestly say thank you? Thank you for what? Thank you for driving us back to the actual Bible to remember what it actually says. Thank you for helping us look in the mirror and to hear the echo of our own voices and our own words. Thank you for causing us to come back together and to seek God, to be in his presence, and to say, God, this is too big and complex for us. We need you. Thank you for driving us back to God. Thank you. And then the final word or phrase that I think should be shaping our posture today is the word please. Please, will you tell me your story? Please, can I support you in some way in this journey? We have maybe different lives, but like, please, can I, can I support you? Please, can we honestly and lovingly talk about our differences? Back to our teaching text today. Now, in light of all of that, I want you to listen to what Peter is actually saying the apostle in his letter. First Peter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Look, this is... This is not about sort of like softening your conviction about Jesus being the risen Lord and Savior of the world. Revere him as Lord. And in this truth then, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, here's the problem. When's the last time someone asked you to give them a reason for the hope that you have in the world? Well, that's just indicative, I think, of of the predicament we're in. This is where we are. And Peter's saying, look, if you're sort of doing it right, not perfectly, but if you're sort of doing it right, your life will look different. And your life will look different in a good way. Not necessarily in a way that always makes sense or goes along with culture. In fact, quite, op quite often, it's the opposite of that. It looks weird and odd and bizarre and off-putting. But as you live that out truly and, and then Christ fills you with hope, people are going to wonder why. What's the reason for the hope that you have? Look around, why do you have such hope? Peter's saying, and if I said Paul earlier, I apologize to Peter, he always has to play second fiddle. But, um, but Peter's, Peter's saying, just be prepared because people are gonna wanna know. And what I'm saying to you is if we learn how to do this right, people are gonna begin to ask us again about the hope that we have. That's a sign we're doing something right. And he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. And this is the part I think we forgot. This is the part of the verse I think we've, we've forgotten a little bit. We've revered Christ as Lord maybe, and maybe we've been prepared to give an answer or an argument for why he is Lord but we've lost a little bit of the gentleness and respect. What happens when you do it with gentleness and respect? You keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That someday somebody's gonna wake up and say, all that trash I've been speaking about my neighbor, that's really ridiculous. They're really actually very kind. And when I needed something, they actually provided it for me and nobody else would. And they're the only one that really asked me about my mother who's in the hospital. And they're the only ones who really 
uh, brought me cookies or balloons when I got a new job. And they're the only ones who offered to help me move some stuff in when I needed some help. You say, well, is that stuff really that big of a deal? That, that stuff's everything. It's everything. It's living, in, it's living as good news so that we can be ready to share the good news when, they're, when we're asked. I'm sorry, thank you, and please. And now here's what I want to say, and I hope this gives you some hope this morning, because it has for me as I've, I've prepared for this, this, this morning. The song being sung, it is a powerful song, a song in which you and I are, in some ways, the villain. It's a powerful song. It's a beautiful song, but I want to say it's not a perfect song. And I think part of what has us feeling so hopeless is it is a good song. It really, truly is. Who doesn't want freedom and flourishing and fairness for the whole world? We all want that. In fact, we might be saying, that's our song. You're singing our song. That's not fair. How did I become the bad guy? I've been singing this song forever. But the song they're singing, the version of it, it is powerful, but it is not perfect. Why? And here's the premise. It's because that which it promises, the freedom and the flourishing and the fairness it promises, is rooted in an expressive individualism that will eventually fail. And, and the, the reason I, I say that and know that is because it always fails. This is actually nothing new. It might feel new to us, but this expressive individualism has been around for a long time. James K.A. Smith, he, he, talks about, he talks about it um, uh, in, 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 his, uh, in his work. Listen, he says, emerging from the romantic expressionism of the late 18th century, it is an understanding, expressive individualism, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that we are called to live that out or express it rather than conform to modes imposed by others, especially institutions. Does that sound familiar? Is that a pretty decent description of the song that's being sung today? It's a beautiful song. We want freedom and flourishing and fairness for everybody, but, but the song being says, if you want that freedom, if you want that flourishing, if you want that fairness today, the place that you find it is inside yourself. And that's the song's weakness. You look inside yourself because that's where the answers are. Just be yourself. You don't have to be what other people say. The, the biggest truth is to just simply be true to yourself. That's what really matters. Well, what's the problem with that? Because it sounds really good. Well, you say look inside myself, but what do I do when I look inside myself and I don't like what I find? Who's going to help me then? Or you say to be myself, but what if I don't know who I am? You keep saying just be yourself, be yourself. What if I don't know who that is? You say be true to who I am, but at the end of the day, I know that deep inside, I'm just living a cover story like everyone else. And it makes me feel worse. Because I'm saying I'm being authentic, but I know it's, it's inauthenticism that I'm, I'm living in. I feel like a fake. There is, and this is the part I hope that gives you hope, there is a better song. And it is about freedom, and it is about flourishing, and it is about fairness. It's a song rooted not in expressive individualism, but in forgiveness and reconciliation with a loving creator. It is a song about being forgiven and restored 
Not because I say I'm okay, but because I know that I'm not. And God enters into my story, into my sin and into my brokenness. And it's about knowing who we truly are because we were made in the image of the one who made us. Freedom comes when we are not true to a, a self that we create, but freedom comes when we are true to the God who has made us to be. Flourishing comes not through self-fulfillment. It actually comes through self-sacrifice. Fairness is not only about my rights, but it's also about my duty to the rights of others. We have a song to sing, and what I'm arguing for this morning and will be for the next few weeks, it's a better song. It's a truer song. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be learning how to sing a better song together. And singing a better song is not simply learning about what to say. It's actually about learning how to live in such a way that causes our neighbors to say, I so want that to be true. I mean, that would be a huge win. To be in relationship with our neighbors and to hear them say about the song that we sing, your life, that thing that you're talking about, the answers that you're giving me about the hope that you have, I so want that to be true. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to learn how to embrace five habits of the most compelling, loving, controversial figure in the history of the world, Jesus, through whom we experience freedom and through whom we have flourishing and through whom we receive fairness. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to learn how to do a few things. Number one, we're going to, ha- we're going to learn how to bless people. We're gonna learn how to bless not just people that are like us, but we're gonna learn how to bless all people in the way of of Jesus. And we're gonna learn how to eat. That's gonna be a fun one. We're we're gonna learn how to eat in a way that opens the door to the hearts of our friends and our neighbors. We're We're going to learn how to listen. We're going to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit. So we're not just flying blind in conversations, but we're learning to hear the voice of the Spirit and recognize what he's already speaking to our, to our friends and our neighbors. We're going to uh, learn how to learn the words and the way of Jesus himself. And we're going to learn how to live sent to bring good news in a world that sees us as bad news. As I was preparing, I had nowhere to put this last verse, but it just kept popping up. And now it probably, because many of you are way more spiritual than I am, it's maybe the first verse that popped up in your mind, but it's Romans 1.16, where the Apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So you may be a, a Christian today that's, that's ashamed of Christians, or at least some Christians, and you, and you might not be. You, you might be a Christian saying, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. But see, our confidence comes not in one another. Our confidence comes in the good news itself. I, I'm not ashamed. Am I ashamed of myself? Sometimes, yes. If I'm being honest, yes. My wife saw me sort of lose my cool a little bit in the airport yesterday. I said something loud enough so that other people could hear on purpose, even though I should have just kept it to myself. And I was a little bit ashamed, not all that much ashamed because I felt justified in it because of the service. (laughs) 
Emily said I should feel ashamed. That's why I'm sharing it. She just said I should feel badly about it, so. Is that good, hon? Is that good? Okay, great. See, sometimes we're ashamed of ourselves. Sometimes we're ashamed of the church. I just want to say that's normal. You know why? We're human beings. And sometimes we fail. And sometimes we fail in very big ways. And sometimes we fail for a very long time. But if we'll regain the confidence that we have in the good news, I think we'll humbly, as we walk together, begin to find our way again. Begin to learn how to sing this new song, a better song, and learn how to sing it together. Let's pray together. I don't, I don't know if any of what I've said this morning um, has set off alarms for you or brought back um, pain that you've experienced because of uh, something that someone has said to you in the past or some way that the church has behaved or, or whatever it is. And I, I just want to say, if I've, if I've contributed to that in, in any way today, I just want to apologize. Uh, you're welcome here, and we love you. We're so glad that you're here. What I think we can't apologize for is when a group of people feel that they have been changed for the better and for eternity by a message of love. And we have to share that with the people around us. And we've, 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 We've dropped the baton a few times in, in trying to do that, and, and, and now the, the, the whole thing's become much, much more difficult, but um, can, we, can we commit today to humbly reenter the mission of God, uh, to share the good news with our lives and with our words, through invitation into this community and through uh, accepting the invitation when we receive it from others outside of this community? I think we just simply need to be reminded of the story, so don't let this communion liturgy just sort of fade into the background for you. I want you to just enter into the story as I read it this morning, to be reminded of the incredible grace and depth of God's love for us and for all humanity, for the whole world even, all of creation. And so as we prepare to sort of re-enter the story this week by taking communion together, by confessing Jesus as Lord, revering him, as Lord in our hearts today. We're reminded.